Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. I'm here, uh, undisclosed location, upstate New York, tucked away, uh, and uh, here with my the great co-host Jamal Brother. Though now our, our guest has just put him in charge. Said, "Yo, Jamal, <laughs> the host." So I guess. Anyway, uh, with the great Jamal Murphy, Murph, what's going on? What's up, Bill? You know, hanging in here day by day. Uh, you know, doing what I got to do. Yeah, man. How, how, how the boys? How the boys and the, and and the wife holding up? How's everybody holding up? Everybody's great. The the boys love it. The kids love it. You know, know. no school. I know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they're living the life right now. And I, you know, I'm trying to be part part time teacher. So that's that's interesting. I know. When they go up, you know, we talk about teachers. And teachers. Now, what was that? Teachers. You got <laughs> to go to the classroom. Anyway, uh, anyway, we we uh, got a great uh, guest on a special guest, somebody we've been trying to connect with for quite a while, uh, Tom Ramsar, who is a former UCLA Bruin, but he's a founder and uh, CEO of Sports Media and Entertainment. Uh, as, uh, he's an NBA uh, agent and more than that, but um, he'll tell you more about that. But Todd, hey man, so much welcome, man, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Oh, no, I, I uh, thank you guys for having me on. And, Bill, I got to correct you. It's never a former Bruin. Once a Bruin, always a Bruin. I'm a, okay. I'm a Bruin for life. Okay. Well, I, I, are they paying you? you just, <laughs> that's the way. <laughs> so, don't, don't answer that. <laughs> I, didn't mean, I didn't mean that. <laughs> I mean, you know, just for the promotion, you know, because you were really representing. You are representing the Shield, you know, for that. Yeah, seriously. I'm sure. Yeah, tell us about your clients, man. I mean, uh, you know, uh, then we'll kind of start a conversation about how you got into this business in the first place. Well, you know, I, got, I represent Pascal Siakam. He's uh, last year's most improved player, NBA champion, you know, all-star uh, starter uh, with the Raptors. Uh, Thomas Bryant, starting center for the, the Washington Wizards. Kevon Looney, the starting center for the Golden State Warriors. Shaq Harrison, uh, starting guard for uh for the bulls and then george hill with uh the milwaukee bucks and then paul watson as well the toronto raptors yeah so i guess the first question man there's so many things to ask you but how are you dealing with this i mean if you look there's there's pre-march 11th and there's post-march 11th uh how's life Mm -hmm. changed for you i think it's changed like um like most of us it's like uh the new normal is uh working on that being the, 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 the normal now. Um, so how it was changed for me is, um, you know, the March 11th uh, suspension of the season, you know, I think came to a, a surprise to a lot of people. I know for me, I was preparing for the season to be canceled. It came up a lot quicker than I think most of us anticipated. And then in terms of talking to my clients and just everyday business, the beauty about being a sports agent is uh, the work isn't monotonous on a day-to-day basis. 
which is the beauty about it because there's always something uh, bound to be exciting that happens, whether it's good or bad. But, um, you know, after uh, March 11th, it's like uh, what the normal conversations would be around this time of year, you know, quickly changed. You know, with this COVID-19 uh, virus, you know, I think initially that those first few days, players were worried about their health and safety. And then that quickly evolved to the conversations about, you know, what are the implications uh, from a business standpoint as it, as this may, um, as this suspension impacts, you know, their salaries for the season. And then in some cases, like even recruiting prospective clients, how does this impact what would be the upcoming draft? So a number of the uh, conversations have changed, but I, I wish I could say business has slowed down. It's actually picked up. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's good news actually, you know, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned, you mentioned some of the implications, um, you know, because of the league shutting down, you know, what, what are some specific things that, that you had to do, especially in terms of the players that you have in the league now? Um, well, again, it's evolved and the information was so fluid and it still is, it is, you know, obviously talk to the MBPA, talk to the union, talk to the league, talk to team personnel that my my clients were playing for and, and really see what protocol they had in place, you know, as it relates to their medical staff and team officials. And then just making sure that my clients and their families uh, were good in the team cities that they were in. Some, some clients had to be quarantined because as everyone saw, some players tested positive on certain teams. And in some cases, some of my clients on the teams they played for, they played against some of those teams within that window of time. So some of my clients were self-quarantined for 14 days. Uh, other clients kind of went into self-isolation like the rest of us and just kind of waited things out to see if they would, you know, they, they or anybody else on the team tested positive and then, um, and then would come out of that and, and see where things are at. But a lot of my clients are, are, are being active uh, with uh, social campaigns, whether PSAs or bringing awareness to, to certain things um, or certain initiatives in the community that were impacted uh, by this uh, crisis. And then uh, some of them are just, uh, you know, doing interviews on some of the local or national media outlets and then um, just trying to make time pass as best they can because, look, they don't have access to their practice facilities. So they don't have access to all that training equipment uh, that they normally would. So a lot of them have had to bring in equipment into their homes or even get, you know, kind of go old school to back when they were playing the game, get some portable baskets outside to get some reps. But other than that, they're just spending time inside with their families and, and, and making the most out of the, out of the situation. Mm. None of them have gyms. I guess they're tears like the LeBron, the LeBron, the LeBron's got, <laughs> Like the gym and, and the whole thing, you know. <laughs> right. 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 Everyone's at bubbles, Bill. But you know what? That's been the whole thing about this whole the whole socioeconomic of this. You right. kind of you know we kind of generally talk about haves, have-nots, and all that. This has clearly made it clear of the economic gradations of. The super, super, super wealthy, the super, super wealthy, you know, and you could think, well, I was on this level, and then you see somebody else who's like, damn, 
this guy got it like that. You know, people who got access to gyms I was just using, but, uh, you know, uh, whatever medical stuff you need, whatever, you know, the third house, the fourth house, you know, I mean, it's really laid that bare and you can just see it plainly of kind of who's at what level of the, of the economic totem pole. Well, you know, guys, I, I've had, you know, I think all of us have had time to reflect, talk to our families, our loved ones, kind of really see how this crisis has put things in perspective and, you know, it's nothing, I think, in any of our lifetimes that we've ever experienced before. We had, you know, the, the economic crisis about 12 years ago, you know, 9-11, and we try to compare, but the reality is this is something entirely different and I think much worse. But, you know, to your point, Bill, you know, say the economic crisis last time, it impacted everybody, rich or poor, to a certain degree. There was some, some relative impact, right? The difference with this, though, you're right in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds and all that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor in terms of how it impacts your health and look i don't care how much money you have if you're if 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 you're dead i mean i hate to be so bad, it doesn't matter period so this is something i i would say that's putting fear this invisible enemy is putting fear in everyone whether you're rich or poor and if you're not taking this serious uh, it's only a matter of time before uh, those individuals will. So that's that's how I look, I've looked at it because you're you're 100 right. Uh, but at the same token, you know, I don't know if there's any place. Actually, Antarctica I was reading they don't have any cases, but there's relatively no place on Earth. Right. That, well, yeah, they they shouldn't let that out because now there's going to be flights <laughs> up there. You know, everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could probably you could probably in Antarctica be probably you know laying on the runway. No, you cannot come here. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's actually how it's been in, in a bunch of places where, you know, people have summer homes and, and stuff like that. People are running to those summer homes, but the locals out there are not really trying to have it because it's a, it's a burden to, to the, you know, the local economy. Right. You know? How people... I have a... There's going to be a lot of, a lot of cases, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, lawsuits after this calms down, because even some of the articles I was reading just to that point, people trying to get to their vacation homes or places on islands and maybe affluent com communities, they're being denied. Right, right. So I can imagine there's going to be a lot of lawsuits uh, here in the next few months, if not years, after this. No, it's, it's crazy times. Are you, are you in L.A.? So my office is in L.A., Bill, but I'm in Riverside County, and uh, I'm right on the border of Orange County, Riverside County, about 50, 55 miles east of L.A. So I, 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 this is an area I grew up in, in uh, Corona, Norco area. So uh, it's, it's kind of good, especially during times like this, because it's uh, a lot more rural. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I, I thank God I just moved a little town outside of New York. And I was like, you know, thank God for that. I was actually... I was in Phoenix because I teach this course at um, uh, ASU. And it just so happens, you know, my journey started, I was at the Big 12 tournament in Kansas City on the, on May, uh, March 11th. But I was in Kansas City for the speaking engagement at this museum. It just so happened that that the tournament started. So I said, oh, well, let me, you know, because I know the commission. I said, let me go and we're in this suite and all that stuff. And but the stuff had really started to get kind of percolating. But that, they were having games that day, remember, Wednesday, 
But then he just made the decision, well, okay, it's a little too late to kick everybody out the pool. So tomorrow, you know, we'll have games with no fans. As I, and I right. thought that was a fascinating concept. Said, oh, wow, you know, you guys got enough sponsorship money now that you can throw fans out to the brother. Fans become expendable. And then he came back in. He said, man, look at this. So the NBA suspended the season. And I was waiting for him to, yeah. to, to just say I was joking, you know. I said, no. And I said, oh, my God. So, but I, my, my, my point is I went from Phoenix uh, to from Kansas City, did the event, and that was the last, then I went to Phoenix to teach. And then, you know, I stayed there for a week, then it was time to come back. I said, you know, I've flown a couple of times. Do I want to roll, roll the dice again? Because I was like, I couldn't get any direct flights back. So do I want to go to Milwaukee and then New York and all that? So I ended up driving back, you know. I just drove from Phoenix back to New York. I figured, well, A, I'll be in my car. You know, I'll be isolated. Safe. And I'll be just open roads because, you know, talking to people back in New York, man, it's like, sound like the fucking Stalic 19, you know, like they were locking everything down. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, this is like a, a, a new world. But I, my, my question, so are guys getting paid? I mean, what's the, you know, what's, what's the deal? Are guys still getting paid or... Uh, is the NBA trying to take money back? It's it's it's. Um, I, I guess there's no clear answer right now, Bill, because uh, they're trying to figure it out both the league and the union. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, and we we could spend a lot of time talking about it because I'm sure sports fans, have, at least people that are following the NBA specifically with the season canceled, you're hearing terms like force majeure uh, being thrown around or you know, escrow uh, withholdings and, and 25% of the salaries being withheld. But, but uh, I, you know, overall, what's what's going on right now is like 22 to 26% of uh, revenue is at stake for the players because around 25% of the season hasn't been completed. And the reason it's approximate is because every player on every team or every team is at a different point in the season based on numbers of games until the end of the regular season. And essentially all players, uh, uh, all players are paid for their work during the course of a regular season. And then within that players are paid either on a six month or a 12 month payment schedule, right? Either a 24 uh, payment installment, which is the first and 15th, or a uh, 12 installments on the 1st and 15th. So where you may see that 90% of uh, players are paid on the on the 12 month uh, uh, payment schedule, other players, the other 10% are paid on the six month. And, and what the NBA is looking at is that those players, those 10% of players that are on the six month, they're, they're close to, it, it, very close to getting paid for the whole season although they haven't played all the games in the season, right? And then for the other 90%, depending on if they got advances before they got on their payment schedule, there's a number of them that that may have or may not have, but they're right at the halfway point or coming up on getting paid for about 75% of the season. So the NBA's had to, to end the union, have really had to analyze this because if the season is... Um, is uh you know is canceled and doesn't resume in june like they're targeting then that could be problematic uh for the league and its partners uh mm. and owners 
Mm -hmm. um, those, if those players continue to be paid the full amount for the season when the season wasn't completed. And that's, that's what the conversations are about. Yeah, there's been, yeah, there's been some publicity, you know, about these all-you-can-get deals that you, I think you were kind of describing. I guess the, that's the 12-month plan. Um, and that, you know, you know, that I guess agents were smart to do that. But this couldn't have been something that... Let me stop you there. And it's not to take credit away from agents. It's like in the last, uh, in our last lockout in 2011, prior to that, the normal payment schedule for the NBA for players was over that six-month period. Owners changed it to a 12-month period, right? Because when you're looking at the numbers of these contracts, that's a substantial amount of money. If they could collect or earn interest for six more months on those salaries that they're paying out, I'm sure they would like to, right, for cash flow reasons. But the NBA moved it from six months to 12 months. In some cases, if you look at those players, star players are going to have leverage to negotiate that shorter payment schedule so they could get all their money up front, you know, and not to say that these circ these circumstances weren't for, you know, weren't foreseen, right. but on value money. If I, if I could get paid in six months opposed to 12 months, I want to do that because I could use it elsewhere for investments or in times like this, Hey, I have all my money up front, but that payment schedule that some of the 10% is on, it's not anything, I guess you could say that's new. It's something that's been there, uh, you know, available uh, to players uh, for some time now. And in some cases, I, I know some agents prefer to see their players paid over 12 months uh, for a number of different reasons as well. It's just in these circumstances, um, it's uh, it would probably be better to be paid over six months because you have your whole salary. But here's the thing. Those same players, if the season is canceled or there's a force majeure or something drastic happens, they're on the hook to pay that back anyways. Okay. It's not free money now. For the players? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's an, the players will bill. And that's the thing is, and, and obviously it's circumstantial. If a player's going to retire, say it's Vince Carter and he's retired, that's a whole different ball game. That's going to be interesting in terms of how that money is recouped. And if, if he was paid over six months and say, I uh, got paid more than what uh, the season uh, that was played this year. But in most cases that you're seeing, you know, LeBron James or um, uh, other players of that stature or all-stars come next season, it's going to get deducted or reimbursed. Oh, wow. uh, at least that discussed. Yeah. That's interesting because that, that was not, that's not made clear in the articles you see about it. It's almost like, you know, those six month, those players are getting paid over a six month period. They get some sort of windfall. So that's not true. Yeah. And guys, here's the thing. This is how I look at it. And obviously I, the players, right, and their interests, which are my clients. But at the at the end of the day, when you look, if you look at the economic windfall of what's happening, it's not just sports centric or NBA centric. The GDP is is going to fall, uh, you know, uh, over thirty percent. Unemployment six point six million, and they're talking about twenty million uh, filing unemployment, like. This is where I think the conversations between the union and the NBA are, are, are more of a partnership or more cordial than being adversarial or, or in times of a lockout um, where they're um, combative. 
right? Because I, I know for me, I want the NBA to be healthy economically right. or else there is no. Right. right. A lot of these owners, and in most cases, I'm not sensitive, uh, you know, just being honest. But in this case, I mean, we, we could see the impact of this virus. This is not normal. This is not normal. And we see the numbers and the statistics. These owners are getting hit hard. You know, the NBA as a league is getting hit hard as well as, as, well as society. So these, this needs to be conversations that are more in a partnership for the betterment of the league moving forward and its players so that it's healthy moving forward once we're out of this. Because I think all of us would agree we're at some point we're going to be out of this and the new normal is normal and, and things uh, get back in terms of our economy and everything else. Well, what do you think, Todd? I mean, it's been floated. And I, I actually thought this, even in Kansas City, in fact, the first column I wrote for the undefeated on the 11th was like, once, they, once I realized these people were going to actually they would go back without fans. I'm like, wow, yeah. you know, they're, they're going to throw them under the bus. I mean, you know, but what, what do you think just in, just about that when this comes back? Uh, I have a hard time envisioning everybody yeah. just flocking back to the state. I was telling Jamal before you got on, even when I looked at like four weeks ago and you show the guys, you know, the teams in the huddle and all the fans close to each other, it's like you were looking at some shit from like 19, like another life. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> doing that, <laughs> you know. So what do you think about I me? Mean, what do you, th- do you think, can you ab- imagine when it does come back at first, there's going to be fanless arenas? And how do you think guys are going to be adjusting to that? You know, LeBron was like, I'm not going to play for everything. Well, maybe I will. But what do you think about that? You, you played, somebody played at UCLA and you're used to playing with fans. What's, you know, tell me about what that looks like and how that feels. There's two scenarios, right? Or two different things to look at. There's the remainder of this season if they come back, and then there's next season. Because we'll get to next season because not to be pessimistic, guys, or or anything like that or not, or or anything negative, but there's nothing nothing to say that this won't continue into next season. Right. You know... Uh, that that's something to be discussed or, or mentioned as well. But as it relates to this season resuming, can I, can I imagine a bill? Yeah, I can, you know, and, but, but with that said, and these are, these are my thoughts, there's gotta be a ramp up, right? And the ramp up is one, you gotta get players back to their facilities, back, back with their teammates and coaching staffs and have them that camaraderie, that chemistry, with no fans and everything, get them back in their environment leading into that first regular season game that I can imagine will be a abbreviated regular season that then leads into an abbreviated playoffs. But I would say this, Bill, if you can imagine, if, if you've ever been to uh, the G League showcase in December in Las Vegas, the only fans there are NBA personnel. Or if you look at you know, say the UCLA runs uh, that Rico Hines coordinates where a lot of NBA teams come up in the men's gym, there's no fans there either. And I could tell you in both environments, it's extremely competitive, right? So the other thing I think about is like, right now, the, the key to all of that happening too is the NBA is going to be strict, has to be strict about 
Uh, their policies and procedures as it relates to the player's health and safety and team personnel. And then they're probably going to have to have it in one city, you know, to just make sure that that's a very coordinated uh, effort and things uh, that the, whatever policies they come up with are tight. But um, I could see players being very competitive in that situation because, you know, if you're the Lakers right now or Milwaukee and you're rolling like, you're trying to win a championship. And I don't know if people are going to put an asterisk behind the season if they play it, if it's a, a best of three game series or best of five and say, hey, that was the virus year and X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, a champion's a champion. And I can imagine from a rating standpoint from the NBA, they're going to have record viewership. Oh, because everybody will be kidding me. <laughs> can you, you can charge anything. <laughs> yeah, every every playoff game would be like the Super Bowl. I mean, seriously. That's right. You know? You, the only, you know, you know, but I was thinking, too, kind of going out this plane of off to um, another level. Let's say yeah. that, because you, you've got the sweeps, right? So when you finally start letting people back, so, okay, again, only certain people are going to be allowed back. So you pay a premium to be in the sweeps, you know? So we have social, and so... You have, like, let's say the uh, Staples Center. Uh, so, first you start with the suites, and you're going to pay arms and a leg to get to go in the suites, right? Then, for social distancing, I don't know how many people the, the Staples Center seats, but let's say cut it in half. So, then right. you pay a premium to be one of the eight, I don't know, 8,000 people or whatever that goes in because you'll be spread out, but you have to play a really pretty penny. To get in, so now there becomes this premium just to now get in the arena. I mean, more like they used to talk about how the, the common man was was priced out. Well, you're really priced out now because it becomes. But now, if you just like the regular guy, we can go online and pay our little fifty dollars to see games. But you know, I mean, it, you're right. It could be more lucrative. Shit, how could we didn't do this? <laughs> how could we didn't do this like five years ago? Bill, I think so. This is going to be the era of experimentation, I think, too, in the next next few months because a lot of I think a lot of concepts have been tossed around. Like, look, even before this came up, the NBA was looking at pushing their season back two months for the biggest reason not to, to uh, conflict with the NFL season, right? right? So, this is the perfect time to experiment with that. If you're going to come back and end in August with the finals, then the regular season doesn't begin until December, right? And see how that works. But I think this new normal of not having fans at the game and viewership going up, the NBA could maybe win over new fans. You just never know, right? Because people are just tuning in for new content, right? Sports content. The other thing is maybe become a new normal that people that were otherwise going to the games and paying exorbitant amount of money, right now with the way the economy is and is going to be in the foreseeable future because we're due for a recession anyways, they may say, let's save that money. I love my experience with my 70-inch 8K television. Let's do that. And the NBA may say, you know what? This whole AR, augmented reality or virtual reality, we're going to sell headsets and have people sitting courtside at home for $50. Well, you already do with like HD. Like I run my sports and recreation program at church. And the kids are 2K. I mean, they're like, and you see, it's like not real. They got Doris Burke 
and Marv Albert and, and the crowd noise right. and all that. I mean, it's already there. Right. It's like not real. So you could, right. you yeah. know, they're, they're already doing it. So uh, you're absolutely right. And then to your point, you know, if you look at your playing career, like from the time you were on the playground, most mm -hmm. of your intense competition was not with folks looking. You know, if you go on the playground, it makes some, but it was like really serious competition. And, you know, sometimes if there were like some fans, like some women or something, then guys would go out of themselves, you know, but, you know, <laughs> you play for the crowd. But the real competition, yeah. man, you know, was like intense and serious, maybe even more so because there was not any other superfluous right. bullshit, you know? So uh, maybe you're kind of getting back to almost a purity of competition. I think you're spot on. Look, I grew up, I'm an 80s baby. I love 80s and 90s NBA basketball because, look, somebody could come down the paint and get clothesline or thrown to the ground, throw right. the punches, and then they're right back on the floor. Now that's all taken. Good <laughs> point. When you get some alphas out there on the floor and that right. testosterone is all somebody has to do, there could be no fans. All one player has to do is bark at the other right. player. Right. Something, it's, and it's now, now it's on. And, <laughs> and you know, it's being broadcast. So, you know, people know that everybody's watching. That's right. You know, your, your reputation is still very much on the line. It doesn't change <laughs> all that much, you know? And guys are tweeting. <laughs> exactly. Thing to have because look, you eliminate home court advantage now, right? There's no fans there. Right. No home court so that's that's something that's lost. But I I still think look, I, I know as a fan myself or or talking to my guys, I know we would look forward to having a season resume, and in some ways it can make sense. I think it would be extremely competitive, assuming guys have enough wrap up time to get prepared for those games, and I think. You know, not just your casual, uh, you know, fans would be tuning in. I think they could win over a lot more fans just because, guys, especially in times like this, sports helps raise the morale of people. Um, and in some ways, you know, even before with the, the, the last crisis, uh, from a business standpoint, I've said sports, professional sports is, is uh, recession-proof to a certain degree. I've, I've said sports in, uh, in our spirits. Everybody likes their uh, their spirits or their their liquor during hard times, but um, I think it would be great if um, if the NBA is able to resume uh, and continue the season because I, I think it'll just help where we're at as a society to to just kind of take time away from uh, from everything else that's uh, that's negative right now. Looking looking at, uh, at it now, do you do you do you think it's are you are you optimistic that the season will get back? I mean, do you, do you pay attention to China? at all and, and what's going out there and, and you know they were scheduled to get it started but they they've been delaying it at least once or twice Jamal I've been I've been paying attention to China since December because I, I do business with China with the CBA as well as just business overall with China even now I'm helping to get some medical supplies to uh, different um, uh, networks in the Midwest to dis uh, distribute because of my relationships in China so I've been looking at China this whole time, even uh, at the new year and seeing how things were escalating and then moving to Europe to where I was saying, look, this is much bigger than sports or basketball. We have to, you know, get, um, you know, be prepared for that to hit the U.S. and, and hit it hard. So um, have I been paying attention to CBA? Yes. The, the, as I look at, 
at the NBA if the season were to resume, it, I think it's all contingent on what's going on in the rest of society, right? And, and where are the hot spots or the flare-ups in our country, right? We see New York, we see, um, you know, Detroit, you know, San Francisco, or New Orleans, California, or New Orleans Seattle. So <clears throat> it, that's why I said the information, everything is so fluid right now because it may seem cool right now, first week of April, but who knows where it's going to be eight weeks from now in June. You know, we could get to a point at the end of the month where everyone's like, oh, social distancing, where we could get be, be a little bit more lax with those measures, and all of a sudden, boom, it peaks again. But I mm -hmm. think that's where the NBA is looking. Here's what we do know, too. Some, some of the medical experts say this could follow a cycle of like a regular flu season where with your warm summer months, it subsides. Look, we're going into summer. If, if the NBA is looking at a city, they have summer league in Las Vegas. Maybe Vegas is the ideal place because they have the hotels and the facilities to accommodate the NBA and its players. And maybe that's the sweet spot in terms of resuming the season, right? If, if that's all to be true. But the tough thing right now this early, it, it's hard to say, mm -hmm. you know? And, and even though we could look at China, I always say it's all circumstantial. What the, the Chinese are doing and their experience now is much longer than ours here in the U.S. And they have certain measures in place to protect players. And look, if they're postponing, it's for good reason. Right. Let's take a break. Our guest is Todd Ramsar, a super agent, um, former, not, not former UCLA Bruin, always a UCLA Bruin. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about how you actually got to be an agent, how you made the transition from the court to the agent business. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Once again, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 million slaves, the rise, fall, and redemption of the black athlete by the one and only William C. Roden. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. Welcome back, everybody, here with the great Jamal Murphy holding it down in Brooklyn. Uh, our guest is Todd Ramsar. He's the founder and CEO of Life Sports Media and Entertainment. Uh, Todd, tell me something. You played at, at, at UCLA. Um, you're from California. Uh, take us through the progression of not wanting to be a $40 million slave. You know, that you were, uh, you know, you were, you were playing and all that. At what point did the light go off and say, you know what, I, I like to, you know, uh, be an agent. I like to represent guys. What was the thought process? I mean, I, I, Bill, I think it was an easy process because, uh, you know, I had a lot of splinters in my ass from sitting on that bench. You know, we had two, uh, we had two back-to-back uh, number one recruiting classes there. And as I mentioned earlier, Steve Lavin was my head coach. So, uh, 97, 98, that was part of a number one recruiting class that was uh, led by Baron Davis <clears throat> uh, coming out of Southern California, Earl Watson, you know, coming out of Kansas City, as well as some other 
some other uh, freshmen that came in that were all top 100, including myself. And then the next year, we had another number one recruiting class, uh, you know, with Matt Barnes and Jerome Moiso, who's a lottery pick to the Celtics, Dan Gazarich, second round pick to the Bucks. So, you know, I always knew going to UCLA that, um, I, I, you know, not only it was that a childhood dream, but I always knew it had a balance of academics and athletics. And I knew I wanted to pursue law, law school. So once I was there and, and all my teammates were guys going to the NBA, there was just this natural, uh, I guess you could say, synergy uh, between me wanting to go to law school as well as staying close to sports. And so after my sophomore year, I started interning uh, with Arn Tellum. Mm. He may be familiar with. He's now oh, uh, yeah. president of operations for the Pistons. We just, we just had his, uh, during the Super Bowl, Troy Vincent gave a thing at, at uh, Tellum's beachfront, beachfront place down in Miami. And I walked oh, in and said, oh, this is a house, a house that Negroes built, you know. But yeah, no, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I know. <laughs> but I know. Yeah. Well, just to give you some perspective, my time there at uh, our, seven of us in basketball. It was Arn Tellum, Bob Myers, who's running the Warriors, Rob Palenka, who's uh, vice, uh, is, uh, is general manager and running basketball operations for the Lakers, Neil Olshay doing the same with the Portland Trailblazers, and then Warren Laguerre is, um, is, uh, owns a, the summer league with the NBA, and then it was myself and another agent um, that's still in the business. So special time, and, and Arn, I think at the time, rep probably about 10% of the NBA, um, you know, and some of his clients are like Kobe Bryant and Jermaine O'Neal and Tracy McGrady and so a lot of my teammates. So that, that's, when I, that's when my eyes were open to the business. I got lucky to be started with one of the best uh, agents at the time. And then um, I've been doing it ever since, since I was 19. Mm. You know, and, and after I graduated UCLA, I worked a year full time for Arn, went to law school at Southwestern uh, Law. And then uh, after that first year of law school, Barron asked me to represent him. And uh, Barron was my first client in 2003. And then I represented guys ever since then in the draft. And then um, after running my own agency for five years, I joined with, uh, with BDA from 08 to 2015. And I was with Bill Duffy. And then I, I've been independent ever since. Yeah. You know, I was joking. was well, not quite joking. I was referring to this. This has been my whole thing power and control and how can African-Americans we, you know, everybody talks about with 70% of the NBA and 60 some percent of the NFL. And of course those numbers are really meaningless unless there's like an economic reality to that too, where you actually control the industry. And I, I guess that's always been a frustration uh, of mine that, you know, even when you look at the NBA, you know, and you look at the front offices, you know, we, we still look like a plantation. And, and again, I'm not using that too loosely, but clearly we're the talent. African-Americans are, are talent. But it seems like that's not really converted. In other words, with other ethnic groups, they tend to control, you know, whether it's the police department or Hollywood or something. We seem to have been, although we're making progress, we seem to have been locked in still at that kind of talent level, and it's not vertical. In other words, the front offices are still predominantly not black, 
Uh, and I'm not sure if this is a, a question as much as it's just an observation. What do you think of that? Because you've seen it much more closely than, than, than I have. Well, you've seen it in a different way than I have. Yeah. I mean, what, what I could say to that, Bill, I think you're 100% you're, you're right. Um, you know, and it's, it's something, I, I can only pull in life experience into this, right? Is an African-American, first generation here, my mother's from Haiti and my dad's from British Guyana, is, is everything, even as I look to my clients, it's like everything you're speaking on has to, there has to be a commitment and there has to be discipline from our community uh, as it relates to making sure that that happens. And it, not trying to simplify it and, and distilling it down to just those two things, but I think if, if all the executives that are African-American in sports, in say the NBA, for example, myself, former players, uh, front office executives, coaches, come together and are committed and stay disciplined about that commitment to educate our youth or to help groom them into those positions. In some ways, I think, uh, and, and also hiring uh, African-Americans when we're in those positions of power, that's when you really will start to see the change because I, I can't blame other communities for, for hiring what they're comfortable with or who their friends are or what the case may be. I, 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 and I think that would be hypocritical because I, I would say I would do the same thing. And, and I'd like to think that I would be based on uh, competency as well, but it's also going to be based on my level of comfort in addition to their competency. So it, it's got to be a community effort for all of us that that's going to happen. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it, it, it just has to be a commitment over time. How about, you know, as an agent, you know, a person of color, um, do you feel like you know? Do you do you feel like you're bringing something else to to the game or to the players that that maybe other agents cannot? Do you, do you feel like you you do have a, a a more special connection with with the client? Yeah, absolutely, and not just my my American clients, even my foreign clients, because of my background. I I played the game, played it at a high level, um, and you know. When, you, when it's so close to home for me where see, seeing close friends get drafted in the lottery or going undrafted or being drafted in the second round, I've seen it all from, from, a, you know, from my friend's standpoint. To go through that process with them and to hear you know, things that they were concerned about and going through an agent selection process, I've always take that, uh, taken that to mind. And look, for everyone, it's different. For me, it's a very personal business. I have four children, and if I'm entrusting a fiduciary or somebody, another agent, with my daughters, I expect them to look out for my daughters because if I find out otherwise, it's going to be a problem. But it's like, that's not something you take lightly. And even as I sit down with my clients, and now that we're on the topic, like, you know, whether it's Pascal, who's from Cameroon, or another client of mine that's African-American, if you look at the amount of wealth that these clients could, could uh, earn over the course of their career, a parent or a family member is not asking me just to look out for their son or their player. They're asking me to really look out for their lineage moving forward because if it's done right, these guys could earn two, three, half a billion, 
you know, $100 million to half a billion dollars now with just their earning potential. You know, Pascal, I was able to negotiate $130 million over four years. That's just on his first max deal. Mm-hmm. He'll have a chance to do another one, right? Mm-hmm. Baron Davis had earnings over $175 million, you know, and that's well over, that's, that's 10 years ago. So that's not a responsibility I take lightly. And when you really analyze it and you look at the opportunities that not just what financially they could do for their families, but now the opportunity for their children to go to the best schools in the country or the best schools in their region. Now, now there's, I guess you could say momentum or it it sends a, uh, it sends a uh, domino effect in our community moving forward because everything comes down, in my opinion, down to education. That's, that's something I even stress in my own household is, you know, knowledge is, uh, is power. And mm-hmm. uh, you got to get access, right, to that knowledge first uh, if you're going to use it uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. Somebody uh, talked about, speaking of economics, how, you know, there's this also about reparations and how this whole black sports community, you know, we look at other places for reparation, the sports community could almost be a source of not so much reparations, but could be an economic engine that, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when we were just tokens, nobody envisioned this, that you look at this athletic community, you know, and it could really represent a significant economic entity. Like during a time like this, when communities are really, you know, black communities and the you know being struggling, you could actually be a an economic kind of engine in terms of the bank. But I guess the question is, let's say fifty years from now, you know, um, you know, part part of what this book was about. There's a thing. There's a chapter here called the jockey syndrome. And back in the day, black jockeys dominated horse racing in the 18th 19th century. It was like the NBA that all the the Kentucky Derby, everything. If you were did not have black jockeys, then you, you weren't really taken seriously. And then again, white society became very jealous of that when that when that position started really becoming an important position. They basically created an entity to get rid of black jockeys, like literally overnight. You know, literally overnight. I guess my question comes. Uh, how do you preserve this foothold? I mean, this variety, this virus has shown us how quickly it could just be changed, let's say like that. Nobody thought the NBA would be unplugged. Just like that, it's unplugged. And we're all right. talking about give backs and that kind of stuff. So I guess my question is, 50 years from now, you know, heaven forbid, could this entity known as Black Professional have to look back and say, damn, what are we what legacy do we leave in our banks? Did we did we start any banks? Did we build school? I mean, did we, you know, uh, you took care of your family. It's great, but did is there any other footprint there outside of just basically a creating wealth for these white owned teams? But do we any other footprint? And I'm just wondering, we're separated by generations, but does that strike you as kind of old school, uh, as something that's just sort of pie in the sky, um, you know? Bill, I no, not not at all. What you're bringing up very complex issues in our community, right? 
Um, and I wish I had the answers. I, I've, I've given it some thought. I've, I've had my own experiences and I, and I, and I take, uh, you know, even my own experiences and apply them to my own family in terms of how I'm raising my children. But it, um, it, there's there again, it starts with, I think it starts with education. It starts with education. It's the, and education, I'm not saying in a formal capacity in terms of in a classroom, financial literacy and everything else. Right. Talking about education as families and at the dinner table. You know, other communities have a jump start, generational jump start on us. And their information over time is getting better and better and better and more refined, where ours is fragmented. Some of us have the position to be there. And some of us don't. And in some ways, the ones that do and the ones that don't, there's there's infighting in terms of the access one party may have and the other one doesn't. Instead of trying to figure it out and 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 get the knowledge, right? And that's again where the discipline and the commitment comes in. Because look, I, guys, I can tell you this. I, I went to Cameroon last last uh, last summer with Pascal, and Pascal wanted to give back to his community. In, in Cameroon and Douala, and uh, and also he went to Yaoundé, and uh, I got to see firsthand the vast resources of Cameroon that sits on the coast, pretty much of West Africa, right? I mean, you name it, they got they can have ports. I mean, as far as you can see, you see trees. The soil is rich. You have everything, but the country is poor. Why? Because it's corrupt, mm. right? And as I was there with Pascal and we were talking, it's almost like the older generation, our generation is lost. Like you, it, we're stuck in our ways, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I, I, as much as I like to think so, we have our habits formed. It's the younger generation that we have to speak to when we, and, and, and help them out to get a mentality where it's, it's more about community than it is about individualism, right? And you can take care of your business individually because but you have to pay it forward to the community. So, Bill, I don't, I don't think, I don't think those that's old school ideas at all. I tell you one thing: even with uh, this crisis with my clients, I've talked to them about is businesses. I'm always talking to them about saving. I don't care how much money I negotiate for you. Save, sending them reading materials on wealth now that they have downtime. Books as simple as Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? To understand those concepts. The other thing I'm telling them is, you know, you why you want to save, and not to make be insensitive about the crisis and how people are being heavily impacted through unemployment and 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 economically being impacted. But these are the times where there's the greatest opportunity, and if Michael or we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Right, real estate. And you want to talk about real estate. You know, you, you want to get deeper into this? You, you talk about the Industrial Revolution and how people created wealth that was in the, you know, hundreds of millions that then became billions of dollars, like some of these affluent families we still hear about three, four generations later. Now we're seeing another revolution, that's the technology revolution, where you're seeing this new class of multi-multi-billionaires, and, and none of us are there at the table. Or I shouldn't say it's a limited number of us right, at right. the table. So right. those are the conversations because there's times in history that we're we're going to have to be prepared, I think, 
as a community to take advantage of opportunities, but you can't be reactive. You got to be proactive about it. That's how I, that's how I think about it. You mentioned, um, you know, the younger generations who we have to talk to. Obviously, your clients are that are that younger generation. And I'm wondering now, you know, as you recruit clients, as as you you know, do you see it? Do you see a difference in the way that they view, um, you know, a black agent? For instance, like, you know, just like I'm an attorney also. So there's, a, there's always, you know, a stigma. Oh, I want a white attorney or I want a white right. accountant. I want a white agent. Um, do you see that changing now with, with there being, you know, other black agents in the game? I think it's hard to say, Jamal, because, yeah, I've been in the business 21 years, but I don't know if that's a lot enough time for me to really see the difference. All I can tell you is about my own experience experience is that it you know i'm conscious of it because it depends on where i'm recruiting in the country and i don't want to stay out of any regions but depending on where i'm at in the country will dictate whether an african-american player will want an african-american agent or hmm. a, a white agent um and, and 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 that's just what it is it doesn't matter where where it is there's so many um, different factors that go into that. I just be me. I, I'm right. just. I know what I bring to the table, and and the, and the, and the proof or the evidence is in the body of work or my reputation. That's that's all I do. I don't get. I try not. I'm aware of it, but I don't get caught up in it. And look for my international clients. I'm several several that aren't black, right, or from Africa. Some that are European. Marching Gortat is a client. That's never come up. Right. Or if I'm meeting with executives from teams, they give me the respect of being an executive with experience and running a business. There's never an issue. But look, guys, I always say this. And, and yes, I'm, I'm proud to be African-American. And I, I think at times there's, uh, you know, we, we have our, um, you know, we're discriminated against at times. But I guess for me, I have that mentality where I'm not going to make excuses for anything from myself personally is I look at other uh, other ethnic ethnic groups and I say look they're discriminated on as well it's it's all left to the experience uh, that I'm having with whoever I'm dealing with that I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, uh, I guess judge uh, the individual on but not the collective right mm -hmm. if I'm with somebody that's that's white or Italian or Irish or whatever I'm not if I have a bad experience, I'm not going to say uh, the whole community is bad, right? right, right. I'm going to judge it based on the one-on-one. -on -one, and if I have a problem, I move on to the next person. But I'm not going to let that hold me back from dealing with somebody else that's in their same, you know, ethnic group or or same uh, or from the same uh, country. Right. Hey, Todd. Um, just one more thing for me, maybe too. What do you think of the African League, the African Pro League? Um, what, what do you think about, about that potential? Oh, I, lo I love it. The BAL League, the Basketball Africa League, uh, you know, the fact that they have the NBA behind it, the, you have FIBA behind it, and you have Nike behind it. You know, you got, you got the major players in the world that are synonymous with basketball, right? And when you look at the continent of Africa and the potential there of that continent, it's the youngest demographic on any continent in the world. And that population is gonna double in the next few uh, decades. So 
there's a tremendous amount of wealth there. Um, uh, As much as, you know, people want to talk it as as an emerging market, there's a lot of well-educated, brilliant people there that come and that have significant wealth uh, there on the continent that are very worldly in terms of them doing business globally. I think, I think it's great what the NBA is doing because if you look at the talent coming from the continent as well, yeah. you know, <laughs> NBA, um, I guess you could say agenda of just, you know, being the global brand of basketball and being synonymous with the sport. That's, that's, that's where they should be. You know, they've been in China now they're in Africa, you know, they've, they've, they've now had a game in India. They're doing, they're making all the, they're taking all the right steps in terms of expansion and visibility of their game. Let me ask you, just take you back to, you know, the, your business as an agent. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge college basketball fan. Um, not, the, not an NCAA fan, but a, a huge college basketball fan. Um, what about the kids? You know, th- this is a weird year for them. They had their season cut short, of course. Um, what about the kids trying to test the waters? Um, how how does will this affect them? Like from your perspective, if a kid comes to you now, uh, maybe he's borderline uh, second round pick or something like that, and he comes to you asking for advice, do you even have time? Do you have the resources to help him with that now? Um, you know, since he can't work out and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I know you value education. Do you, do you think of it in that way too? Like you know. Is it, are you better off telling a kid to go back to school because of, because of the uncertain times or whatever? Yeah, so great question. Um, it's this is definitely impacting uh, the ability for underclassmen to test the waters because the, the dates that the NCAA has set out April twenty sixth, underclassmen have to declare for the draft. Right, June third is the decision that for underclassmen to decide whether they're keeping their name in the draft or they're withdrawing it. Well, right now, if we don't have an NBA season right now and teams aren't uh, teams aren't bringing in prospects here in the near future for workouts which usually start in may because their facilities aren't open and team personnel aren't in their facilities then how can you test the waters if you can't even be evaluated so unless a prospect is projected in the first round or uh or that first round second you know uh first round bubble if they're projected second round to undrafted that's not a good situation for them to be in. But again, the information is fluid. I'll know in the next few weeks if they put their name in now at the, by April 26th and by May 7th, we hear teams are working out or the NCAA said, hey, we see what the circumstances are. We're taking a June 3rd date and moving it to August 3rd or September 3rd because the draft has moved back. Now they could test the waters, right? right? It's, it's not as uh, it's not just left up to the NBA or the NCAA. I have to look at if I'm advising properly. I have to look at what the NCAA is doing in terms of uh, uh, changing their dates, and then also from an NBA perspective, how are teams going to evaluate prospects other than just their uh, past season's film breakdown, and then exactly when is the draft? So, so Titus. What where would you like to see? Like if we're talking again this time next year, what do you think? We I know we would love to see playoffs. We'd love to see the bubble. You know the playoffs. Realistically, where do you think we may be this time next year? And and everybody talks about this is the new world, the new normal. What do you think that new normal looks like? Will look like? Honestly, Bill, I have no idea. 
I'd, I'd, I'd be honest with you. In, in a lot of ways, uh, Bill, I'd be honest with you, I haven't thought that far ahead. I'm thinking about the immediate future. I'm probably looking, um, I'm probably looking five months ahead. Okay. And the furthest I've thought is maybe the end of the year, right? Mm -hmm. Eight months ahead. Why am I thinking five months ahead? I'm thinking the possibility of a season coming back. And if the season came back and ended in August or September and there's a draft, then when is the next, the next NBA season starting? Okay, it would start in December. But I'm also thinking, well, what are medical officials saying What based on what they know? It, this right. could start in the summer and it could come roaring back in, in, uh, in the winter. Okay, and some people are like, Todd, well, they're talking about a vaccine. Okay, well, how much does a vaccine help people with uh, the the common flu 10 percent right yeah not being right. pessimistic with yeah. that data so this new vaccine helps 10 percent of people you're still talking about a lot of people being impacted by this uh, until we get to a herd immunity as a society so what does that mean I'm, I'm just trying to put two and two together to see what's realistic and what's not because I, I could, I'm telling you guys, being honest, I knew the NBA season was going to be postponed based on what I've seen in China, what I was seeing in Europe, and we're not that special as Americans to think that a virus isn't going to infect us when we're the melting pot of the world and right. people are flying into those countries. It's, I think even Bill Gates talked about it. If the Spanish influenza of 1918 was, was here now, it would be 50 times worse because of our, the world has gotten smaller with travel. So I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, Bill. That's a long winded way. The three most popular words are, I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> Everybody. But all your guys, but, but it was good. Your clients are healthy. Everybody's, you know, uh, hanging yeah, in there. Everybody, I tell you the biggest thing, Bill, for me is mental health, man, for my guy. And I know that is thrown around loosely these days and probably, you know, my father's generation would be like, like, what, what the hell are you talking about? So, yeah, the, we, you know, we went through a lot rougher times and you're talking about mental health. But what I'm really talking about is like this whole, um, you know, self-quarantine or being at home. Man, I mean, some of my clients have been at home for, for three weeks now and they're young people, young adults. And it's like, that's not healthy. You go outside, there's no sun, depending on what part of North America they're in, Right. And it's, it's just not healthy. I, I know I get stir crazy being in my office or being in my home 24 seven has nothing to do with me and how much I love my family. It's just, I need sun or I need to be out, out and about interacting with people. And if my guys aren't doing that, we're only three weeks, maybe four weeks in, right. what's it going to be possibly at eight weeks or mm. 12 weeks in. Wow. So I'm trying to be forward thinking as far as that to make sure that I'm supporting my clients to make sure that if they need to get out of the, get out of the situation where they're at now to go somewhere and rent a house so they can have a few acres to walk or have a pool or get some sunshine i just want to make sure i'm ahead of uh ahead of it opposed to waiting till that till that happens and uh they're scrambling to get out of their uh current situation okay. what kind of questions do your clients ask you just in terms of you know uncertainty about the return of the league you know stuff like that are they overly concerned or just playing it day by day. I think it's very similar questions to what you guys have asked too. It's like, you know, what's, what's this force majority? What's the NBA or the union talking about? 
Um, in all honesty, Jamal, I, in, as I said, that evolution of questions were those questions were the questions I just talked about probably came at uh, the latest, the beginning of this week, right? Last week and really beginning of this week. Now the guys have the information and again, they're trying to make the new normal no, as normal as can be. And, and depending on the client and the circumstances, we're talking about what the next few weeks could look like uh, if they needed, you know, come to come to their off season homes, uh, not to train, obviously, but just to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, Todd, this has been great, man. Uh, I know we could talk for another hour. Yeah, let's talk for another hour. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much, man. Uh, this has really been very enlightening and uh, respect what you do. Um, and, uh, and I just, uh, I can still tell people just keep the faith, man. Stay healthy. Right. You know, uh, Keep your family healthy, you know, enjoy the family. I've had a couple of people tell me, um, you know, uh, that they've, it's gone like old school. They've been having dinners together, families have been having dinners together. And they're very, and they, one guy told me, a guy in Philly said, you know, I, um, this has forced us to realize how busy we were. Like, right. just kind of crossing out to take the kids here, do this, do that, do that. And, you know, here you're just kind of, stopping for a minute and having dinner together and all that. And, you know, so, you know, that yeah. part been good. Well, part of it too is like how much unnecessary busy we were too. Because yeah. I tell you, I'm and see, I, I wasn't as worried. Like with me, I could be a lot more efficient being right here. Because guys, I don't know about you, but if we would have done this before, either I would have saw you in person or if we did the podcast, I don't know if I would have used Zoom. Right. right. I, I, but this is great because I can see you guys and, you know, put a face to the name and it makes make the, it makes this so much better. But I expect this for me and my work, right? But when I'm seeing my kids, my daughters are, are big dancers. They're dancing and doing their classes on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Bill, it's like, it's, you know, this time of year, I would be traveling every day meeting with families, different parts of the country, recruiting for the draft, going to a regular season game, getting ready for the playoffs, and Lord knows what else is in between that, going to my office. I'm doing it all from my home and still there to have dinner with my girls, say our prayer before our meals, help them with their homework, and still get more work done. Right. So, like I said, I think there's, I think, at least for us, there's some positives coming out of this experience where... You know, I like the camaraderie and the interaction of people, but at the same time, maybe some of the busy was unnecessary. Travel time, different things that just you really didn't need. The I challenge agree. will come when it, whenever this comes out, do you lapse back into the same thing? You know, couple. You know, one thing I was being reflected on, Bill, at that point, what you're saying is, I think some things, yes, but I think luxury, maybe. Uh, not viewed at the same. And what I mean by that is like, one thing I'm noticing from these meetings is like, you guys can see, this is how I'm having my Zoom meetings with prospective clients. And obviously I'm a, a lot dressier than a t-shirt, but, um, but it evens out the playing field to where my clients aren't caught up in how nice my office is or the car I drive or what shoes I have on my feet. They're, if anything, they're looking at the substance of whatever presentation it is, or even me articulating exactly what it is that I could provide in terms of a service, right? 
And in some ways, that I think for me, that's great. It's like we could, you know, you guys need to huddle up as family. Guess what? Let's meet tomorrow in person because it's another Zoom meeting. So opposed to having to jump on a flight and being pulled in multiple directions. So I'm, I'm curious, Bill. I, I don't know what tomorrow brings, uh, but to your point, it's just uh, trying to stay as safe and healthy as possible. Same thing with my family. Okay, well, man, God bless, uh, you know, keep everybody well and safe. I just picked up some duck. I'm going to go and cook some duck. You know, uh, you know, <laughs> really run through about five cookbooks already, you know, but, <laughs> you know, we, we've been having family. My brother lives in Germany. So we've been having these Zoom check-ins and, you know, so, right. you know, uh, I just don't want us to get too used to it. You know what I'm saying? Like the human condition, we can adjust to anything that's good and is bad. You know, you don't want to, you know, freedom is really important. <laughs> you right. know. And, and, and the freedom, Bill, and then even just something as simple as a handshake or a hug. Like, you see, like, it's crazy to think, like, the thought about hugging somebody that you've known all your, your life, like, oh, so, yeah. like, should I go in? Yeah. Hit him with the elbow? <laughs> right. My hands, like, you know, just that, that's something I would have never imagined before, you know, or think about. So it's going to be interesting. It, like, like I said, the new normal yeah, from a hygiene standpoint, I think overall people are going to take that more serious. But right. in terms of our interactions or how we greet people, I'm I'm curious as to how that will change. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we hold on to the positives and uh, you know the negatives we let go. But like you said, there are positive things that came out of this uh, family time. Um, you know, just like you guys, like spending more time with the kids. You know, I, I talked to my mother more than I was. On, you know, this is just uh, so there are definitely some positives. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you guys for having me on and God bless. And you guys stay safe and healthy on your end. You too. Uh, Hope we can get you back on uh, when, when things are back to normal. Oh man, you guys let me know anytime. I, I love, uh, I love the banter back and forth too. <laughs> yeah. And Zoom makes it all work, Jack. I wish we had got stuck in that. <laughs> all right. Seriously. All right, Todd, take care. All right, Todd. Thanks a lot. All right. Good, Jamal. So uh, we still on the still no season. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still no season, and I'm, I'm I'm feeling less less optimistic by the day. Like the longer we go, and and we're not even not like you said, it's not even long. We're not. We're just into April. Um, yeah, so the season theoretically, we're just now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we just be ending. We'd be gearing up for the playoff. He's talking about June, man. You know. Yeah, June. So we'll see. I mean, that, you know, two months is a long time. We'll see. Things could be different in June, but they could be worse, you know. So yeah, we, shall, yeah, we shall see. Yeah. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.